Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. If you're looking to throw some optics on your turkey gun this spring, look no further than the Vortex Defender ST. This is the red dot we're going to be running this season. We're excited about it. This thing's built like a tank, super lightweight, super long battery life, everything you need in a good turkey red dot. And if you want to get a discount on that red dot or any other Vortex Optic, go to eurooptic.com and use the code SGN10 to get a discount. That's eurooptic.com, code SGN10. If you live in the Gulf Coast region, you need to find yourself at the EcoWild Expo May 10th through the 12th in Mobile. It is the premier outdoor expo for the Gulf Coast region, and we're going to be there. We're going to have a booth. We're super excited about it. Can't wait to meet you guys that live down there. We absolutely love the Gulf Coast region, so to be a part of this show, we're super excited about. We're going to have past podcast guests there at our booth for you to talk to, guys who are relevant for your area, who you can talk to, you can pick their brain, you can joke with them, laugh with them, tell them your story, whatever you want to do. It's going to be a awesome time. We're already working on some past podcast guests, but hey, if you live in this area and you have a suggestion for someone you want to see at that show, write in and we'll see if we can get them. There's going to be all kinds of exhibitors at the show that are focused on hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation. There's going to be activities for the whole family there. They got axe throwing, archery. They're going to have our podcast booth. And then for the kids, they got touch tanks, a honeybee exhibition, a raptor show, kids fishing tank, BB gun range, and a butterfly house. So you're going to love it. Your kids are going to love it. It's going to be an awesome time. So head on over to ecowildexpo.com to get more information on the show and to go ahead and grab your tickets. And hey, mark it on your calendar. May 10th through the 12th. Be there. We want to see you. And we're excited to talk to you. So we'll see you at the EcoWild Expo this May 10th through the 12th at the Mobile Convention Center in Mobile, Alabama. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. If you're not watching this one on YouTube, you ought to, because the guy that we're interviewing has quite the wall behind him. Mr. Corey Brown. Corey, how are you doing, man? Pretty good, man. It's it's October, coming up on November, so, I, man, I'm, I'm fired up. I'm ready to get back out there. Yeah, man. Yeah. My favorite time of the year. Uh, Jacob, how are you doing? Oh, doing well, doing well, dude. Uh, favorite time of the year. Interesting. Yeah, okay. I, think, I think, I don't know. Well, ask me in the spring. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the second turkeys start popping off and start gobbling, Andrew's like, oh, man, forget deer hunting, dude. It's, you know, turkeys Yeah, I'm one of those guys that kind of flip-flop based on time of year. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going to lie. Yeah, but no, Corey, super excited to have you on. So, uh, you're one of our second guys, uh, actually you'd be the third guy we've ever had on from the state of Oklahoma, which is a state we've been trying to get, give a little love to just because there's a lot of really good deer hunters over there, but also it's such an interesting state, uh, in, in the country when it comes to, like opportunity to be had, uh, it's a very diverse state, you know, 
whether you go to like southeast Oklahoma, it's still kind of like pine country, rolling hills, uh, a little bit of mix of some mountains, a lot of pines, uh, clear cut activity. Then as you go to other parts of the state, you know, you can still get in rolling hills with a little bit more timber and also some like more wide open habitat. So it's a really diverse state that has a lot of hunting opportunity. And you're coming in from like that south central part of Oklahoma. Uh, but Corey, to kind of give us a little background on you, what is like your background on hunting that general region of the state? Have you always hunted kind of South Central Oklahoma, or have you kind of bounced around a little bit? Like, what's like been your background hunting there? Man, I, so I grew up hunting probably about I'd say fifteen miles from where I hunt now, uh, and we hunted that. That was a lease property that my dad had when I was a little kid. Uh, he started carrying me out there in a backpack when I was like two, three years old, um, and we hunted that. You know, up until my I was probably 10, 11 years old. And then since then, it's been properties all, like I say, right there within a 20, 30 mile radius of the property I'm hunting now. But we have had since I was probably, I'd say 11 or 12, we've had properties leased. Uh, it's all timberland in southeastern Oklahoma that, you know, that's totally different hunting from what I'm used to hunting here. Uh, but far as far as what I know best, you know, that down there, I don't get to spend as much time. So it's more of a foreign deal. Uh, I'm kind of lost when I'm down there hunting, but whenever I'm here, yeah, this, this area right around here, it's always kind of been the same, the same terrain, same kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, to kind of kick off this conversation, I want to talk a little bit about the habitat on like the property that you guys hunt on right now. Uh, if you were to describe it for listeners and viewers of what everything kind of looks like, how would you go about describing it? I would say, man, if, if you could just picture it's it almost makes me think a lot of, of areas that I've drove through in like Kansas with more rolling hills, it's less flat. Uh, there's, you know, like the property I hunt, is a good 90% of the property, 80, 90% of the property is going to be wide open, uh, grassland with grass that is like up to your chest and then big draws of mature timber running through it. Uh, and you know, generally those draws are following a Creek. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if, if it was cleared at one time or if that's just the way that it was, but, but most of this land, and even the surrounding properties to it is the same way. It's just big open pasture land with big mature draws of timber running through it. And as a bow hunter, you kind of hear that, you know, it's kind of opposite of what we deal with a lot in the deep South. Uh, but again, this is something interesting for our conversation that if any listeners or viewers are interested in going to any of these kind of States where there's like Oklahoma or also some of these other, or more Midwestern States, where it's like a flip-flop it's you know more open ground less kind of cover in a lot of these areas um this is like a really good understanding of how do you how you go about actually hunting it especially during the rut and the success that you've had in these areas um but when, when you're looking at this kind of habitat you're talking about like a lot of the more mature like all your timbers down low well as a bow hunter at least in the deep south where we're at if logging companies come onto a, a lease property or a hunting club or even some public land and they start cutting and it opens up a lot of stuff, you have a lot of hunters that get very upset because they don't like the whole open aspect because like, well, I don't have a tree to climb or anything like that. Well, where you're at, you don't have a lot of options because <laughs> your timber for the most part's in these drainages. How have you, of course you've been born and raised in this kind of area, but like how have you adapted to using that to your advantage as a bow hunter and trying to get close to a lot of these deer that are using, you know, they have a lot of area they can cover, but you only have a few, 
I guess, uh, prime areas to really focus on putting a stand in or getting in the saddle or something like that in order to get shot opportunities at these deer. Right. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, there's two main ways that I go about it. And really it's, it's intersections where, you know, several of these big draws of the, the real mature timber will all come together somewhere. And, you know, luck just has it that on the property I'm on, a lot of those areas where it comes together are on that property. Uh, so, you know, finding the spot, just those pinch points where those, all that timber runs together, you know, because the deer, they don't, they don't love to travel across those wide open hills. Uh, they like to travel down that timber on the edge of it a lot of times. And the areas where those all kind of funnel together is always, you know, a pretty good area to be in. Uh, and then the, the hardest one though, the second, second kind of thing that I'm talking about is their drainages that don't have any trees on them. And so you look out across this place and all this tall grass and it looks to your eye like it's just flat. And you get out there and you start walking around, driving around, and you'll find these areas where it's just kind of a ditch. And, you know, it may be 30 foot wide and may only be, you know, six or seven foot deep. But with that tall grass on it, a deer can walk through that ditch all day long across those hills and you'll never see them. And they use that a lot. And, you know, you can't really hunt in those ditches because of the way the wind blows down them. Uh, it, it'll never work. I've tried it and they, they smell you from every direction. But uh, if you can find an area where one of those ditches runs into that timber and, and kind of find just where that pinch point is, where, it, where the two kind of funnel together. And, you know, generally if you can find a setup right there in that area, you'll, you'll catch a lot of deer moving in and out of there. Man, this is this is kind of intriguing to me because as you're talking about this, kind of like Jacob, your question a second ago, like this, my mind kind of switched to like equating this to what I'm used to in the South, and especially where we're at, we're used to really really large clear cuts where that that first year like it's grass and kind of thick stuff, kind of like what you're talking about. Obviously not on the same scale as what you're talking about, but the the SMZs, you know, you got your timber down in the drainages, and then your tops is going to be grass and whatnot that the deer can go around in. Uh, and we've talked a lot about hunting low spots and clear cuts, just like what you're saying, like those ditches. We try to hunt similar stuff down here that runs into the timber. And one thing that I find interesting about talking to you and, and other guys and even Western guys uh, is the fact that you have all that open ground. And it, it, I think it, it offers a different perspective from a standpoint of how the deer use the terrain. Like one thing, we've, we've hunted Wyoming a couple times. And what, one thing that we figured out when we were out there is, yes, there's, there's not any timber, but the deer are still using the terrain in a very similar way that they use it out here. But it's just like the curtains are open and you can see it. You know, you might see it from 750 yards away and you can't do anything about it, but you can see it, you know, and you're still yeah. learning. So I'm really curious to hear more about the terrain aspect of how you hunt. And one thing that I wanted to do to kind of kick that off is where you're talking about the timbers down in these drainages and the grasslands come down to meet that timber. And you mentioned those edges. What are those edges like? Are those, are they really thick? I mean, I don't know what kind of cover you guys have down there. So what's that habitat transition like where it goes from grassland down into mature timber? Uh, so the, the, that, that transition really, the majority of the time, because all of that timber is, is big mature trees for the most part, you know, it's, it's like, it almost reminds me of Southeastern Oklahoma in that aspect, just because, you know, when you look underneath pine trees 
and you can just see all through there. The pine needles just kind of kill all of the undergrowth out. And a lot of that uh, happens here, not, not as good. It's not as clear. You know, there's still some thorns and stuff, but it's, it's not real, real thick. Uh, and those, that kind of helps too, just because they, they don't like to bed in those areas because, you know, a lot of the ways that I do scouting in those transitions is sitting up on some of these rolling hills and just glassing the edges uh, because you can see almost all the way through that draw. These draws may only be, you know, at the most 100 yards wide. And so you can see completely through them from one side to the other. Um, there's, you know, there's it, it differentiates. There's some areas that are thicker than others, some that are clear. The thicker areas a lot of times on the edges is going to be like persimmon trees growing. And, you know, they just don't get very tall uh, before they get pretty bushy up on top. And so you can't see through there as good. Um, but, yeah, the, the transitions really most of the time, it's not real, real thick. And, you know, the, the thick areas you find out around there is going to a lot of times be where deer are bedding. Uh, and it, that's generally the thick areas are at the end of one of these draws. Some of them, the big draws will run like out onto the top of a hill somewhere and then they'll just kind of peter out into, you know, a couple of small boat arc trees here and there, and then there'll just be a thicket, uh, like green briars and stuff that you, you want to hunt near just because you know what's hiding in there. But at the same time, you don't want to shoot one and have to be on your hands and knees tracking them through that stuff. Yeah. I have, I, I have questions I want to follow up with about that, but I have to ask about this because you mentioned basically doing observation sits in this kind of setting. And again, you know, likening it back to people here in the Southeast, it just brought to mind, we do uh, every Thursday, we do a listener Q and a episode. So these, like what we're doing with you right now, come out on Monday, but on Thursdays we do listener Q and A's and you know, it's just like what it sounds like listeners writing questions. And we have a lot of listeners in the Southeast This is very common. They might be hunting like 2000 acres. I saw a guy post about this, I think on the running gun page the other day, Mm -hmm. 2000 acres. And 1800 acres of it gets clear cut and all of a sudden they're hunting a 2000 acre block that is nothing but chest high sage grass and smz's and again it's not exactly the same but it's very similar to what you're talking about and we had a guy from georgia mason brook talking about you uh right in about a property like this where he's like hey my property's been cut it's been sprayed it's basically a giant open clear cut uh with little smz's running through it and he was asking about doing observation sets on his property. And so we answered those a couple weeks back. But I'm really curious, and he's talking about specifically bow hunting as well. And you're a, you're a bow hunter. So I'm curious to get your take on observation sets while you're bow hunting. Uh, what, like, what is your goal there? So you're, you're setting up and you're watching maybe one of these draws. Uh, what attracts you to a certain draw to watch? And then what information are you trying to gather from that? So the, you know, really, really what draws me into the areas that I'll go make observations sits on areas that potentially, you know, I'm going to try and hunt is finding the areas where a lot of these, the drainages that run out of the pastures with no trees will run into those draws. And, you know, if you can just find a high point up on a hill somewhere where you can see the, the main thing I'm trying to figure out is which one are they traveling the most? Like, where's the point in that draw where they're entering the timber or exiting the timber and what times of day are they doing that? Uh, you know, a lot of times the the spot they go into in the mornings, cause they'll go in there and browse in that timber all day, you know, especially this time of year with the acorns on the ground and stuff, they'll be in that timber browsing around. Uh, they may bed down in there, you know, just, just for 
30 minutes to an hour at a time throughout the day, get up and feed some more. And when they go back to their main bedding, generally what I find is they come out of a different spot. Uh, and I try to set, you know, depending on what, if they go into this spot in the morning and they leave from this spot in the afternoon, you know, I try to have my sets in those areas based on this is going to be a morning hunting spot. This is going to be an evening hunting spot. Just kind of, you know, trying to really pinpoint the activity in and out of those draws. Okay. Interesting. I, I want to go down that rabbit hole, but but first I want to kind of kick it back and add a little more context on the bedding. So you mentioned where these draws go up and they kind of peter out. Again, very similar to what we see here. You'll have your SMZ go up into the clear cut, especially when it's like two or three years old. By the way, what is an SMZ? Just imagine, just imagine oh, yeah, yeah, new yeah. Oklahoma people listening yeah, and they're okay. like, have no idea what you're talking about. An SMZ being when they come in and they cut all the timber. So you got a big ridge system. They'll cut all the timber off the top of that. But as soon as that ridge system dips down into the creek bottom, they leave that, that mature timber down there. And that's typically going to be like your oaks and uh, and maybe some hickories, but mostly like oak trees are growing down there. They cut all the pines okay. off the top. And so what you're left with is open hilltops and little drainages full of timber. And a lot of times when those SNZs run up into that clear cut, of course, like the further you get up into that clear cut, mm -hmm. there's more sunlight and it kind of peters out. And then the head of it is just as like thick, little hell hole full of you know all kinds of briars and terrible stuff and you you mentioned that you have stuff similar to that where you're at is that an area that you're primarily finding deer bedding during the day specifically bucks yeah you know uh on the 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 property that i hunt it's it's more the bucks so you know that that area is is going to be a lot more hidden just concealed you can't i mean like if you try to drive up there you know on your side by side or something and then you try to to go through this you're just going to end up in a tangled mess and you'll find these little deer trails going through them that are like you know you can get on your hands and knees and make it through there if you have to uh but you can't see 10 yards into it in any direction and it's just green briars you know uh bodark trees will be in there the tallest tree may be 30 foot tall uh with just stuff growing all around it and you know, my guess is, I mean, the, the, probably in the middle of them. I've never pushed into one deep. You know, I don't want to get in there and spook them out, but I'm guessing there's something inside of there that's opened up enough they can bed down or or be comfortable. But I try to find the areas coming out of those bedding areas as close as I can to them uh, to try and pinpoint those bucks. But I have found that, you know, those areas, the does that I, that I get on trail camera around those areas, are generally not coming out of that bedding area. They're coming from, you know, out of a draw somewhere, the draw that peters up, and the bucks kind of use that as like a big, just a bedroom up there. You know, they lay down in there and stay there, and nothing can get to them. Nothing knows they're there. Okay. All right, listen, I'm, 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 ja we're Jacob, getting. Jacob is excited we're, over we're here. We're all getting. So for listeners, if you have not just paid attention to what, what's been discussed in the last 10 minutes, okay, <laughs> this is the connection that we're making from – Corey in Oklahoma to a lot of what we deal with in the southeast, especially around these fresh clear cuts. And it's almost a like maybe that habitat looks a little bit different, but it sets up exactly the same from like what he's talking about and what we see with down here in the southeast. Man, Corey, if you came down here, you'd freaking slay on a clear cut. Yeah, dude, I guarantee you. <laughs> because it's interesting because that's like what you get to hunt 24-7. Like with yeah. us, it's almost a rotational thing because our our understory grows so fast here. Mm -hmm. You've got like two or three years 
before that thing turns into an all-out pine thicket. Mm-hmm. So it's like you you got two or three years of history with this one, and then it's aged out. You got to bounce to the next one, and but you get to hunt it all the time. So that's why I'm excited to have this conversation because like. You know, if you get to hunt it 24-7, you ought to be pretty good at it. Oh. And judging by your wall, you're pretty good at it. So, <laughs> Well, and it's also making the, just the making the connection of, like, your hunting style and how easily, in my opinion, in our opinion, I think, it relates to what we see in the southeast. Because, yeah, you're, you're hundreds of miles away from, like, some of the stuff that we're hunting. But it sets up exactly the same. It sets up exactly the same. It's just unlike where we're at, like Andrew said, like with our growing season, you know, at some point that's going to turn back into timber. Like within four to five years, it's going to be a timber thicket, a pine thicket. And the deer don't use it exactly the same as, you know, where you're at. It stays consistently the same year over year. So those bucks continue to do the same thing year over year. Um, So, again, for a lot of our guys, you know, again, like Mason – what's Mason's last name again? Brooke. Mason Brooke. What Mason. (laughs) <laughs> what you've asked us about, this is exactly <laughs> like the conversation we needed to have, okay? And he's over in Georgia. So uh, that is super exciting. So, again, these bucks seem to be bedding at the head of these draws, head of these drainages, where kind of peters out, gets really, really thick right there. Dude, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. I'm, I'm 10 times more excited for this episode. I mean, I was excited beforehand, but now this is like awesome, dude. Um, so, Corey, let me ask you this. I, I want to talk a little bit more strategy, specifically with like this, these buck bedding locations, because, again, direct comparison to the southeast. When you say you do observations on some of these spots, you know, you try to get up high and you're trying to like watch. Do you ever try to pay attention to like, I'll give you an example. Say you have like one of these, uh, you know, in your area, these ridgetop like kind of uh, pastures. Maybe you have, you know, a drainage on each side of it that parallels and you have like the big creek drainages and then you have these secondary drainages that come up. Do you ever have spots where like those those secondary drainages that come up to the top of that, you know, ridge, do they stop ever a couple hundred yards apart where those thick spots are directly across from each other and you see bucks going from one spot to the other across the top? Yeah, and uh, that that's a lot of times how you'll see deer that you've never had on camera on, on this property is, you know, just sitting, you know, a lot of times I try to find the highest hill I can out there and look across the top of the other hills because that's generally where those drainages kind of run up. You know, they'll they'll usually die out you know, let's say a couple hundred yards from the top of this hill, maybe. And the only time that you're able to see those deer in these big open pastures is when they're making the transition from one of those drainages to the other. They're, you know, in in my mind, and a lot of times they're moving fast across there and it's because they feel exposed. Uh, they know just as well as we do that that they're up there and they're able to be seen. You know, they're they're up there on top of the hill with nothing nothing blocking them at all. So a lot of times that's when you can kind of figure out, okay, here's a deer that I really want to try and find and, and see on trail camera, you know, try to hunt maybe. And if you can see them crossing those hills, then it, you pinned it down to the two drainages they're using. And if you can follow those down just to where they go into the timber, uh, then a lot of times, you know, you can end up getting that deer on camera there. I've got so many questions. I've got so many questions. Okay. So uh, I want to get into some trail cam strategy in these areas, but before we even do that, Typically, for like a mature buck in this kind of landscape of what we're talking about here, what do you, again, taking maybe the rut equation out, you know, just taking the rut out of the equation, typically, what does the movement look like? If you're like doing one of these observation sits, like say say a morning versus an evening, you know, especially if you're kind of pinpointing where you think some of these bucks are bedded or you think a buck's bedded in one of these, uh, these, these tops of one of these drainages at the very head of it. 
typically what kind of movement would you see? Would he be coming up in elevation depending on morning or evening or dropping down in elevation? What do you typically see in those areas? A lot of times, uh, especially if it's an area where that, that there's an area they bed up on, up on that hill, uh, then in the mornings, most of the time early season in the mornings, they're going to be coming up from, from down in a timber draw up to like an area where they're going to bed. And usually in the evenings, and this is all, this is all pre-rut. Like, you know, I would say right up until let's say October 30th, uh, just towards the end, October 28th, I think is when muzzleloader season opens here. And most of this activity is, is before that. That's kind of the point when it transitions into to another conversation, but they, uh, right now, yeah, I mean, uh, I really, you know, evening hunts here right now are, are about as good as it gets. Um, the mornings, you know, if you haven't seen anything by eight o'clock in the morning, you, you know, I like to sit until like 10, but really, if you haven't seen anything by about eight, you might as well just go home and eat. Um, they're, they're moving a lot better because it's, it's just been so warm and always is early season here that they're moving up and trying not to move around as much as they can get to those areas where they bed in the morning times. Uh, so on the observation sits, yeah, uh, you'll see them moving up more in the elevation kind of in the mornings. And then generally around four or five o'clock in the evening, you'll see them start moving down so that they hit that timber right about five 30. Hmm. Very interesting. I'm d- dude, this makes me want to go sit a fresh clear cut and like a one-year-old, <laughs> two-year-old clear cut. And, yeah. You know, get up real high and, and watch for this because um, it is it is fascinating, Corey, how many times we've jumped bucks. Again, same situation, just different habitat type where you've got these drainages coming up into a clear cut, top of the ridge, and you like happen to walk up one of those and all of a sudden you blow a buck out at 1030 in the morning. He's been bedded there and you get in there. He's all, got all twerp beside, just rubs everywhere. And that's like his little super tight little core area. And then he kind of expands out from there in the evenings. And I, I, that's very, very common down here, and especially in this hill country where we're at in, you know, the deep south. That With that taking place and talking about like the movement patterns and kind of going up and down in evening, or, you know, morning and evening, what is your trail cam strategy if you're trying to like get a pattern on a buck in this kind of habitat type? Like how close would you push a camera into – you know, ahead of one of those draws or at the base of one of those draws to try to catch him coming out? And how do you like to position your cameras in a way that you're more likely to catch him slipping out, um, you know, from one of those draws? Yeah, so so like at the head of the draw up near where, closer to where a bedding area would be. Uh, man, in the past, I've been really, really conservative about getting close to him, and I've stayed back. And a lot of times what happens is where that draw comes out, there may be three of those drainages it takes off right there, like almost like a turkey foot. And if you're not willing to get right there up close, uh, it's just a guessing game of which one he's going to take. And, and a lot of those big bucks take the same one every single day, you know, and they, they're just creatures of habit. So, you know, through listening to other people and stuff, I started getting into pushing closer to bedding areas and, I'll get up there as close as I can, you know, and find find the area where it looks like they funnel out and then split and set a camera there. And then I'll set one at every single spot where those those draws run down into the big timber kind of at the bottom of them. Uh, just as soon as they run in there, because what happens when they get into that timber is they'll, you know, they'll split. There's not really even trails in there then. They'll, they'll split and browse throughout there, and you just never really know exactly where they're going to go once they get in there which is kind of why everything I hunt is more 
kind of edge orientated right there on the edge of it. But as uh, far as my trail cameras go, yeah, just as soon as that, soon as that, that uh, draw that runs down off the hill runs into the timber, that's going to be where I set most of my cameras at. So what are you putting your camera on in that situation? Because uh, I, like, I don't really know how wide this draw is coming out. Like, it, Are you trying to cover a 50-yard wide you know, mouth of this draw, or are you putting a mock scrape there? Is there a defined trail coming out of the draw that you're trying to find? Yeah, it's generally it's uh, just a trail that's really beat down. I mean, you know, they'll they'll coming out of those drainages, they'll all walk the same place so much that, you know, there won't even be grass on the ground there. It, it almost looks like a cattle trail uh, coming out of there. It'll just be, and I try to to position the camera where that it points as far up that as I can, but sit it far enough back that if they were to hit the edge of that timber and turn before they went into it, that I'm still getting them on camera. Uh, but I like to to have it kind of pointing straight up the trail that they're going to be coming from or going back on just because, you know, more pictures of them, better angles, stuff like that. But, uh, yeah, it's, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to cover a big vast area with it because you pretty well got pinpointed where they're going to be coming in and out of the timber right there. Um, you know, and if you get a little bit extra down the edge, then, then you may be doing better for yourself. But for the most part, you know, you kind of know where they're entering and exiting just by, you know, you look at the ground and it's, it's just obvious, you know, it's almost, it's almost a, like a ditch cut into the ground where they've walked so much. Uh, like I say, it just looks like a cattle trail with deer tracks in it. Also with these trail cam locations, you're mentioning, it sounds like you're trying to, it sounds like a lot of these deer, they're not walking right down the edge of the ditch. Cause we hear, we've got other podcast guests that talk about you know, especially in hill country, mountain country, you know, bucks are using drainages going up and down, but they're not necessarily walking up that drainage or down the middle of that drainage. It's like they're side healing one side or the other. Same thing what yeah. you're talking about here. They're kind of picking one side or the other, kind of hugging towards that edge of where that grassland kind of comes down, which you know, for our southerners, where the edge of the clear cut comes down next to that timber, they're kind of hugging that edge typically is what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, a lot of times, uh, which draw they use will depend on the wind based on is the hill on this side of the drainage higher or this side. And they just get to where it from, from everything that I've gathered, it's, it's like they can hear better if the wind's not hitting them right on the side of the face. So they try to hug the edge with a little bit higher hill if the wind's coming out of that direction. So they've just kind of got a block and they can hear better. Uh, kind of what I think anyways. The, the leeward side of the ridge. Interesting. Leeward side of the draw. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So for for listeners and, and viewers out there that are trying to track what Corey just said, it's like, you know, if you've got a, a ditch that's running, for an example, say east to west, and you got a north northwest wind, he's probably going to be on that trail's probably going to be on that north side of that ditch where the wind's coming over the top of the ridge, and it's almost kind of like you hear guys like Dan Infall talking about this and everything else on the leeward side. Yeah, the leeward side of the ridge. So the wind's coming over the top of the ridge that he's walking down. So it's almost like a tunnel right there that the wind's not – they're not getting pounded by the wind right there. They can still smell everything, but like you said, you know, they don't also have like the the disadvantage of having the wind hit them directly in the, the face or anything like that where they can't hear as well, especially in higher wind situations. Yeah. Yeah, and that's that's a big deal on that on like properties all out around here is it's so open that man, once the wind gets to blow and it really rolls across there and you know, whereas if you're hunting a place, that's a lot of big timber, uh, you know, a 10, 12 mile an hour wind may not feel like much. And then areas like this, it just feels like that. It's just about to blow you over. 
that makes sense. Another thing that I find kind of interesting, and, and I'm wondering how to like apply this here, is you're talking about the trails coming out of these draws are just absolutely worn into the earth. And kind of going back to what I was saying earlier about how our our clear cuts change so much, like every couple of years, where yours are staying the same all the time. Like I could see why that trail being that that property's mm. probably been like that for 50, 75 years or something. And so they just always have that that edge right there. Yep. Whereas with us, you know, it's aged out in however many years. So they don't have time to, like, make that just ancient giant trail into the earth right, right. there. So maybe for Southerners, look for look for a deer trail, but maybe don't be disappointed if you don't find, like, a like just a cattle trail, you know, coming right oh, out of there. Absolutely, man. We've, you know, I've, I've seen it hunting in southeastern Oklahoma because it's, it's a lot more like what y'all are talking. I mean, this is this is pine country, and it's logging companies that own this land. Uh, it's just leased out to hunting groups and stuff. And man, it you know, it it sends me for a loop because I find something that's really good one year, maybe two years, and then they come in here and they cut a bunch of timber and they change everything about this area. And you know, from my lack of experience hunting in it, uh, I just can't look at it the same. You know, I have to go totally move somewhere else and try to find something similar to what I was hunting there because it, you know, it totally changes. And I don't know how to hunt that area anymore. See, this goes back. I, I've talked about this before, but like, this is one reason why I want to own some property and buy, if we could buy a small property that's got, it's been clear cut, but it's got those SMZs and manage it to look like what Corey hunts. Yeah. Where it's consistent year over year, like you keep it like grassland on top of those ridges and or on the top of the ridges, and then your hardwood drainage is coming off. You could build that habit where those deer continue to use it year over year, exactly the same, and it never changes. And you just manage it with fire. Oh my god, that that's kind of what so Anthony's excited. trying to do. I know, but God, that gets me so excited. Yeah, that's what that's what uh, Jacob's uncle is trying to do. Yeah, uh, I want to I want to kick mm. it back to something that you mentioned earlier in the podcast, and that was one of the very first things you mentioned of stuff you like to key in on is where these timber draws meet each other. So where you might have a couple of them uh, meet each other, I guess. Like, are you talking about a thermal hub there? Or we call it a bowl in the south, but some people call it a thermal hub. Yeah, so, I mean, I, it's just like, they're, they're my favorite areas to hunt. You know, the areas we've been talking about with the drainage just running down off the hills and stuff, those are kind of my second go-tos just because it's not as predictable for me catching those deer moving in and out of there i have to do a lot more homework with that whereas a lot of different things can happen that i'm not expecting in these areas where you know say say there's a big draw running through north to south and a big one running through east to west and they just come to a cross at a location and a lot of times one or both of the draws will have a creek uh and you know the other one may be just a finger off the creek running down through there but those those areas where that those come to a cross and it's it's hard to hunt because of the way the wind swirls and just everything goes through there like that and you know it's almost like you have to just drop everything you think about hunting wind uh i can't you know if if i'm going to pick a day to go hunt the right wind in a location like this i'm going to hunt 10 days out of the year maybe so you just have to go and kind of uh, risk it but uh where those areas come together there'll be you know, say that each draw is 100 yards wide, which is really pretty close to what most of them are. And so where they come together, you're going to have a couple hundred yard, basically like a circle there kind of in the timber. Uh, and the edges, like, you know, where this one comes together, this one comes together, these little V's on the back edges of this cross, 
is going to be a pinch point on those edges just because they'll travel right down that edge before they turn and go out this draw. Uh, and, you know, basically it's a guessing game, which of these four points you're going to be hunting in. Generally, I have a stand at every set uh, and just through some of those observations, sitting up high, looking down, seeing which ones they're traveling the most often is kind of where I, where I decide which one I'm going to be sitting at. But Okay. Another question, by the way, when you do an observation sit, going back to, again, Mason's question here, if you see a buck in there and he's like, and he's running one of these edges, are, are you just diving in there and hunting him like the next day that you get? Uh, I mean, what is your game plan after you see, let's say you see a buck doing what you want him to do. Are you just going straight in there after him? I'm, I'm probably aggressive to a fault. Uh, and it, you know, generally it probably comes from just excitement. Um, I can't hardly contain myself. I've, Anybody that knows me will tell you I, I become possessed during deer season. So whenever I see one that I want to hunt and I sure enough know, you know, he's one I would kill, then, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm probably leaving from that observation set if I've got time that day to come back and set something up if I don't already have something there. And, you know, I'm going to be hunting it within for sure within that week. But, yeah, I mean, if at all possible the next day. And it's just to me because – you know, trail cameras are a great thing, and they've also kind of, of ruined it just because, you know, you, you wait and wait and wait, and you get a picture of this deer one day. A lot of times, you know, you'll get a picture of a big buck, and he's in there one day. And here, generally, they will come back through there within the week at least once. Uh, and a lot of my big deer have been killed that way off of, you know, I see one, He's in a location and I go right in there and I just start hunting him probably a little bit too aggressively, you know, risking busting him out of there. But it it never fails that sometime, even if I don't go hunt on trail camera, sometime within that first week of me seeing him there, he'll have made a move back through there where I could have killed him if I would have been there. So I've just got to where I start going straight in there and hunting them. Uh, and I would say, you know, majority of the big mature bucks I've killed have been killed Man, probably within, I would say within two weeks of me getting them on trail camera for the first time. Okay, so you don't you don't wait for for any kind of like consent. Like you don't have to see him twice in the same spot before you want to dive in there. Like if you get him, you're you're going in there. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I mean, my observation sits are are to to kind of find the habit of the does because I'm a big rut hunter. Uh, so I'm, I'm finding the habit of the does and if there's a good buck traveling it consistently, then that's great too. But as far as I'm just trying to find a deer to hunt and whenever I find one of those big bucks, yeah, I just, I like to dive in there and get to hunting him. Uh, you know, because the worst thing that happens is I put a set up and I never see him again within a week or two. And then I have to go try to find him somewhere else. But that's, that's just kind of the game that I play with them, you know, chasing them around until you find somewhere that he's coming too often enough, you can get in there and, and get him killed. Okay. Uh, now, there's been a lot of emphasis put on observations and, and actually putting eyes on a deer. Uh, what role does buck sign play in your strategy? Oh, I mean, you know, as, as much as I'm talking about the, the observation sits and stuff like that, I spend a lot of time whenever I'm out there checking trail cameras and stuff, you know, just kind of walking up and down some of these draws uh, on the edges. And if I find an area where there's a sure enough rub line or, you know, a scrape line through there, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to at least have a camera on that 
area somewhere through there. If not, you know, a lot of times I'll just go hunt it. And, you know, it's, it's, it plays a really big role. The buck sign does and rubs not as much just because man, the deer here, they just rub every tree in sight. It seems like they, they're just constantly rubbing on something. Uh, scrapes a lot of times, you know, I, a lot of the younger bucks, at least where I hunt are really liberal about messing with scrapes. Um, just because most of the older bucks that are out there are really dominant, really mature bucks and they get run off from that kind of stuff. So generally, if you find a sure enough scrape line where there's just been scrapes worked up and down this draw consistently, then generally you're at least in the area of a mature buck. Houndstooth Game Calls is your home for turkey calls this spring. Go check them out. They got all the classic turkey calls. You know, they got the pot calls and the box calls and the mouth calls, but they also got a couple really interesting calls. One of them is called the the success call, and you just need to go look it up. It's very, it's like a box call that you can work with one hand. It's really, really cool. Sounds incredible. They also got the Spur Master, which is another very unique call that you can get some really unique, clean tones out of. They're going to help you out this turkey season. Use the promo code SOP24 to get 15% off of your order at Houndstooth Game Calls. That's SOP24. Use it at checkout. It helps the podcast. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you can head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. Now, let me, I, I want to try, I want to transition back to like these thermal hubs, these bowls, these areas where you have multiple drainages all coming together. Um, you're talking about when you're hunting those spots typically when i hear someone talking about hunting one of those what we'd call a hub where it's like a couple different reasons it's hub of activity because you have all these different points of um travel all coming to one area but also it's a hub a thermal hub where all your thermals when they fall they kind of pull down to this one specific spot um but you're talking about typically when i hear somebody talking about hunting a, th- a, a hub a lot of times they're trying to get down in there like in the middle of all that kind of stuff which again makes it very hard to hunt specifically with wind like you really need a day with like zero wind light and variable conditions in order to hopefully have an opportunity because if there's any kind of wind you know unless it's blowing right down one of the drainages and there's not like a hard bend in that drainage like 100 yards down it's going to kick the wind back that's the only way you could really hunt it. And then again, you're blowing out that whole area and hopefully, you know, the deer come from a different direction. Um, but you're talking about kind of hunting a little bit higher up 
you know, right between where two of those, like the little ridge point right between where two of those deranges come together um, and catching movement coming around there, which is a, a really good uh, a, a point of uh, attack because you can kind of come in from the top. You don't have to necessarily come in from the bottom and, and disturb anything down low. But my question is, like, with those hubs or, like, with these, uh, you know, these pinch point hubs and you kind of hunting the tops, how do you typically see bucks using those areas like is it typically like they're coming down one draw and they kind of like you know cut across another draw do they kind of drop down to the bottom a whole bunch like visually what do you typically see in those areas with like bucks but also like doe activity yeah so i mean really it's it's kind of one of the same with the bucks and does in these areas for me they all kind of do the same thing uh the does will kind of scour the edges of it a little bit more uh and not necessarily go down into that point where everything falls together and uh the bucks they they tend to travel straight across you know wherever they come in they're traveling down into that very bottom part and then straight back out of the other side somewhere and you know i used to hunt down in that bottom and i've just kind of gotten to where i you know i always say you can be greedy but not too greedy wanting to find that area where everything comes together and that is the best spot but you're already in an area where all those draws come together and you know, that's, that's about as good as it can get because every time that I've tried to push down in there where I catch the funnel, where every single deer is going to hit this point at some time down in there. Uh, it's like you said, it's just, you know, wind's wrong, something's wrong. They're blowing out of there. It never worked. And so the trade-off is, you know, I'm going to hunt this point up here on the edge and the buck that I'm after may come in at a different point that day. And, you know, it's, it's a game of just probability, really, bouncing around those edges from the observation sets, the information I can gather until, you know, the stars align and I'm sitting at the point where he comes in or out the day that he does it. Uh, so, you know, I don't push down into those bottoms as, well, any anymore. I used to do it all the time and it never panned out. But now I hunt up around those edges and, yeah, the deer, does will kind of just make it around the edges before they go down into the very bottom part of it but generally the bucks they move through there kind of like they're on a mission you know uh in one point down to the bottom and up and out the other side interesting now typically in those you know we use the term hub in those areas where all these deranges are coming together do you typically is that pretty commonplace for you to find scrapes and just a bunch of like just active like this buck activity when it comes to sign is down those bottoms yeah Man, not so much in the bottoms for me as as the kind of the edges of the timber leading down to that area. Uh, there will be scrapes like this time of year. There's scrapes all over already down those edges, just up and down. Uh, you know, they'll make a scrape here and there, down in there, and then uh, they'll make some rubs and stuff. May have a rub line going through there, and but most of the time, up on the edges, kind of around it, is where I find most of that stuff. Now, do you have any kind of trail cam strategy for like those? Again, the term we use is hub. Do you have any trail cam strategy for how you put cameras in an area like that? I mean, do you just kind of keep focusing on the edge of it and then kind of, you know, use that to your advantage? Or do you put cameras every down the bottom? Like, what is your thought process there? I, you know, used to, it was always just on the edges uh, around it. Just because I didn't want to have to be going in there every week or so to check the pictures and messing around down in that bottom, leaving my scent all over the place. But, you know, since, since cell cameras have become a thing, I do. I put a, a camera down in the bottom just because you're most likely to catch, you know, this, if a buck's going to move through that location every day, that's where you're going to get him on camera every day. 
And so, you know, I don't have to go down in there and touch that camera, but you know, when the batteries die or something like that. So uh, I do now, I, I run a camera down in the bottom of there, but I also keep them up on the edges just to try and figure out which spot I'm going to hunt. Now in the bottom, is it like on a Creek crossing? Is it a scrape you put it on? Is it a trail? What kind of, you know, spot most do you want to put a time, camera? Most of the time, Creek crossings, uh, you know, that's, that's the easiest place to find where they've they've been the most consistently just because of how easy it is to find tracks in a creek crossing. And so, you know, there'll be trails coming down to that crossing depending on where they entered the draw and stuff. But if, if you can find that crossing, yeah, that's usually where all of the deer, no matter which, which point they entered the draw and come down to there, that's generally where they'll, they'll cross at. Now, another thing about these, these hubs, again, where all these drainages are coming together, how do you pick which which point you want to sit on around, you know, in this hub? Like, how do you go about, like, is it just wind base? Is it, you know, sign base, observation base? Like, how do you pick where you want to position on a specific hunt when you're trying to hunt a specific deer? Most of it's observation, you know, depending, it could be observation from a trail camera or from making some of those sits from outside, uh, looking in to the stuff. Um, you know, finding the one that they habitually travel in and out of the most is, is generally how I do that. Uh, and then trail cameras, especially now with cell cameras, is a big deal. Uh, you know, watching, you know, that morning, if if I get pictures of deer, I know I'm going to hunt that evening and that morning. I've got them coming in and out of one of those spots. Generally, I try to find the area opposite of that spot that's leading up to one of those bedding areas that may run out, you know, into the pasture. Or if it's just running into another one of those draws on the other side trying to find which one kind of leads back into the thickest bunch of timber. Uh, generally I hunt the opposite one of where I've had, you know, if I'm going to, if they come in this point in the morning, I'm hunting the opposite side in the evening. And then if I'm going to hunt the next morning, then I'll hunt the one I saw them coming in just because, you know, I've come to find they're such creatures of habit that more times than not, they do that same thing for several days in a row. And does that hold up as well during the rut or does it kind of go all out the window during the rut? Absolutely not. It completely goes out the window during the rut. Um, during the rut, really the man, the strategy for me is finding the area where it's, it's not even, you know, I kind of throw the hunt in the areas where everything comes together out the door. And if you find the draws, uh, where they run down, that's the kind of the clearest through there where you can see the most through there from the ground. The does really like browsing in those areas uh, because they can see anything coming in or out of the draw. And then the bucks, you know, they're there where the does are. And it seems like the bucks love to travel those edges checking because they can see through there, see the does. The scent blows through there really easily so they can smell them and check them. And uh, so that, you know, whenever, whenever the rut comes on, I have different spots that I hunt totally from the spots that I hunt early and late season. And, you know, that, that is really how I've killed the majority of the big ones has been in some of those spots. Um, you know, and I, well, I guess it's kind of an even trade. I've killed, I've killed them doing both ways, probably half and half, but those rut spots, you know, they're so unpredictable that it's just a guessing game and you feel extremely lucky whenever you do get one to run in front of you and you can get him stopped. And, you know, it's just totally, totally two different styles of hunting that area those two times a year. 
Yeah, oh, see, I'm, I'm so I'm so fascinated. See, I want to go hunt Oklahoma so bad now. <laughs> hey, by the way, Corey, while you were talking, Andrew pulled up the map, and he was looking at some random part in Oklahoma that had, like, the habitat you're talking about, all these drainages coming through. I'm, like, looking at it, I'm, like, drooling. I'm, like, oh, my God, it looks It awesome. really does look similar to clear cuts around it, it's, it, it is. Yeah. It's just instead of, like, grassland pasture, you just got have a clear cut. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially, like, it, it makes, me, makes me wonder – like some of these areas and you have some private land managed like this and some public land managed like this where they run a lot of fires and they don't let it get thick and they don't let it get back to like a, uh, a full timber stand. They kind of manage it almost like what would be called like a Savannah cut where there's a few trees, but it's a lot of grasses kind of in those areas. Um, and you know, it, I think it would hunt very similar to like what you're talking about. And really we've hunted a place like that, Mm -hmm. uh, in in a part of the state Mm -hmm. that sets up very similar. And it seems like they use exactly like Corey's talking about. Yep. Uh, I was actually just thinking about that place we were talking about this. Okay. I was like, huh. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> like, maybe we should, maybe we should pack maybe the truck go back up. there. Yeah, maybe we should pack the truck up yeah. and go down and hunt. Yeah. Um, so, Corey, with all this, I, I, I want to, before we talk more about the rut, I want to talk about this buck that you just killed uh, early in October. What was the setup for that spot that you went into pick, like, that you picked out, like, you know, was it around one of these drainages, like what you're talking about, like at, closer to one of the head of the drainages, or like, how were you positioned when you killed that buck? So this, this is an area where there, there's a draw that runs uh, east to west here and just a big, and that, that one actually does not have a creek in it, the, but it meets an area where a creek runs north and south. Uh, and these two, two draws, they meet, uh, and it's real big mature timber, pretty clear through there. Um, and that, so, so the area where I'm hunting, the north and south meets the east to west. To the west, the draw peters out into nothing. There's not a thicket up there, nothing. It just kind of peters out. Then there, it meets with one of those drainage areas that runs up to an area where there is a thicket. So they travel down that drainage. Then they hit where the draw peters out. Then they come down into this area where I'm sitting. They browse around in there. And then generally they turn and go either back to the west uh, or to the, the south there. And it man it's just kind of a pinch uh there's some oak trees in there and stuff i am hunting on the south end of that creek so it's more you know trails coming through there you can find where they where they cross to get across that because the creek right now is completely bone dry i mean it's just uh but the banks are really really steep and so they'll find areas where they can cross and there's a little opening uh it'd be in the i guess it'd be in the north the northwest corner of where some of those draws come together right there. And I'm just about, I would say, 40 yards off that edge uh, in the timber where there's a big draw that runs down to a little finger off the creek. Uh, And, you know, it kind of flattens off once it gets down there, and then they cut across the big part of the creek and back up and out. And right before they go down into that little flat area in that finger of the creek is kind of where I have my set at. Uh, and man, it, it's really good early season. Uh, once the later part of the year starts rolling around, I pretty much abandon this spot. It's just this time of year up until, uh, right here, you know, in the next two weeks, I'll probably quit hunting there completely. Now with that spot again, how close are you, at least relatively to where you would suspect like bucks to be bedded at? I would say, man, it's probably going to be 
their bedding area from that spot is probably a mile, mile and a half. I would say it's, it's a long ways. Uh, it's just the closest pinch to it. There's nowhere in that particular bedding area. Uh, there's nowhere to hunt. There's nowhere to get set up. You can't get close enough to it. And, you know, this is one of the spots when we first started hunting on this place that we put a trail camera up and it's just, you know, we've, we've moved it around here and there up and down the draw to kind of best find the pinch point where they all travel through there. And, but it's not, it's not necessarily like exactly what I'm talking about when I'm talking about most of the spots that I hunt on this place, as far as where the pinches and stuff come together, all the draws funnel in or the drainages. It is that, but I'm so far away from the bedding area that, you know, it's, it's not typical of one of the spots that I have the most success at, uh, it's just an area that every once in a while you catch a good buck coming through there. And, you know, if, if, I, if it hadn't have been so good for me a couple of times, I honestly probably would have abandoned the spot just because it, it's not as picture perfect to what I usually try to do. Uh, but it's really the area I would normally hunt is just farther down the draw uh, where, where the bigger bulk of the draws all come together. This is just kind of like a little, a little version of that up from it and walk us through that hunt so like what actually played out um into that hunt that you know gave you the opportunity to kill that buck yeah so i'd had that one i'd had that buck on camera since probably june july i mean i had him on camera in full velvet and uh he was really really consistent almost on a pattern like i was thinking up to opening day you know, he's dead opening morning at seven thirty. something, you know, just, it would be easy. And, you know, as, as it always happens about three days before season opened, he disappeared and he showed back up on October 2nd while I was at work. Uh, and I think he was there again on the third and fourth. I hunted the third, fourth and fifth, um, Buddy was there opposite times of the day of whenever I hunted. And then on the 6th, uh, I hunted that morning and didn't see, you know, probably three or four does, a little buck. Um, and then that evening, I went in there and every, just the air felt different. You know, everything kind of felt different. Uh, the deer were acting a little bit different. The bucks that come in were uh, starting to kind of spar around with each other a little bit, which in this area, you know, they'll start real early season just kind of tickling horns together and stuff but these deer were i mean like kicking up dirt knocking heads together just fighting hard and it was right around five o'clock i think uh 100 probably 230 140 inch uh three-year-olds in front of me are just absolutely you know i'm thinking they're gonna break their horns the way that they're fighting and that the buck i killed you know was the dominant buck in the area and I was sitting there thinking, you know, how cool would it be if, if these two bucks fight and rattled him in? Uh, just, you know, not expecting really to see him, thinking he's a big old smart deer and he probably knows that I'm in here right now. So I'll just sit here and enjoy the show. Uh, and then, man, I about probably 10 minutes of them fighting like that went by. And I just hear from behind me uh, some running, uh, crushing through the leaves and stuff. And I just kind of turned my head to the left and, and to my left, there was a, a little tree growed up, uh, and there's one hole, you know, maybe the size, a little bit bigger than a baseball, maybe a softball. And 
every time I would hunt that spot, I'd think to myself, how cool would it be to shoot one, you know, if they just stopped right there in that hole. And, you know, but that'll never happen. And this, this buck runs in, head up high, you know, just about to go show these two young bucks who the real boss in that area was. And uh, I didn't even have to stop him, man. He stopped in that spot with his, I mean, perfect double lung heart shot right there in the, in that hole. And so I just kind of thought to myself, you know, I could let him go up there, but this is as good a time as any. And so I went ahead and drew back and uh, shot that deer. He went, you know, he was right at 25 yards and he went about 40 yards. Uh, seen him go right out of the timber and heard him pile up out there. So I knew he wasn't very far. Uh, but yeah, man, that, it was it was a really cool deal the way that he came in there. You know, those bucks basically rattled him in for me, which was crazy uh, that early in the season. But everything has been kind of happening earlier this year just just because you know i i think they've had such good nutrition and uh the deer you know they're not they're not stressed out they're not having to conserve their their body weight and stuff for the rut like they normally are because like he was 200 and either 204 or 206 pounds dressed uh which is a giant deer for this area you know most mature deer 160 170 pounds on the hoof so for him to be field dressed, hanging on a scale at like 206 was absolutely crazy. But that's, you know, a lot of the deer's bodies are like that this year. Yeah, it's interesting you said that about everything's happening a little earlier. I was talking to uh, a guy that we're going to have on the podcast from North Carolina. And I've talked to some other guys as well that like throughout the whole Southeast, yep. like it seems like everything's a little bit earlier. As in like the sign's better, um, the buck activity's a little bit better. Um, and a lot of guys have kind of, you know, wrote it off that, Earlier this year, we had a lot of moisture, a lot of rain. I think y'all had quite a bit of rain early as well. I think yeah. we might have talked about that. Um, so you had a ton of browse. Deer were probably able to put on a lot more um, just body fat. And, probably recover faster. Yeah, recover faster. Yeah. So like at this point in the year, even though it's, it's a drought for a lot of us, they, they are already so much more healthier than maybe they've been in the last few years that they're willing to lay down a lot more sun. It's not necessarily the rut's going to happen anytime early or anything like that. But just laying down more sun, and they're not—they're not so focused on having to still feed super heavily mm -hmm. that they're already, yeah. you know, at that max, you know, you know, health, you know, health range for these deer. So they're willing to actually, you know, lay out a lot more sun and everything. Because again, he was saying the same thing in North Carolina, like you know, they're—they have bucks full out fighting right now. They're laying down a lot more sun, you know, a few weeks earlier than they're typically have seen. And he chalked up to the same thing, like you know, probably better, you know, health of the deer. Uh, better nutrition and everything and they're now more focused towards the rut instead of that more early season pattern kind of you know bed to food that you would typically be seeing yeah yeah for sure i mean they're you know here and yeah i, I never think the rut's going to happen earlier just because rut seems to happen the same week every single year when it kicks off and uh but you know generally you don't get to see a, a whole lot of pre-rut activity what people talk about you know seeing some bucks really start fighting laying down a lot of that big sign and just starting to kind of get in that mode. And around here, you know, in the past few years, we haven't got to see that because it stops raining so early in the year. Uh, and this year it, it rained so late into the year, everything stayed green. And I think, I think a lot of people are getting to see deer act like what deer are supposed to act like uh, right before the rut kicks off and stuff. You know, that, that pre-rut activity, it can be some of the best, time to experience things out there and learn about deer because that's when you're hearing them you know you're you're hearing grunts and hearing bleats and hearing all these different things that you know as far as calling a deer goes uh you know 
it, it doesn't play much of a part in the past here because you never even hear them make those noises when you're out there hunting. Uh, and, and this year you're getting to hear some of that stuff early just because, you know, they're getting to act like deer. They're not, their primary goal right now isn't to put on as much weight as they can to last them through the breeding season. Uh, it's just to, I guess, just to wait until that happens because they've already got their body weight up. They're already healthy and, you know, they're ready for whenever it does come. Yeah, by the way, uh, y'all put a tape on that deer and you took it to your tax service as well. Uh, how'd that deer kind of perform for you? Because, I mean, he's he's a hell of a deer with a ton of mass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, uh, so so me and a few of my buddies put a tape on him at the house uh, after right after we killed him. Uh, I'd got him back home. They come over. I just hauled him back to my parents' house, uh, and they come over to help me take pictures and stuff like that. Um, and we put a tape measure on him and got him at 176 and six eighths. Uh, you know, I, I feel like realistically gross score and he's probably going to come in right about that 170 mark. Um, but you know, we were trying to be conservative, so we'll see, hopefully, you know, if he hits 176, that'd be great. And maybe I should start up scoring deer for people if that's the case. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, man, I, I, and he's actually, so that deer's actually done, uh, my taxidermist has got him mounted up right now. Uh, he sent me pictures yesterday. He's got to dry for a couple of weeks and he'll be ready to come home. Uh, and for anybody, you know, in this area, anybody looking for a taxidermist, uh, Buddy Andrews, he's got, it's called Buddy's Wildlife Taxidermy in Roth, Oklahoma. Uh, dude does his own, you know, like he's he's just mounted this deer and he's made his own, own mouth that's open for somebody with like an acorn in it and, you know, spit coming off and, just super artistic, a really good guy, and, and gets them back to you quicker than anybody that I've ever known that does taxidermy work. So uh, anybody that's looking for somebody, you know, give Buddy Wildlife Taxidermy a call. But, yeah, man, he, he said he's going to have him uh, – he's got a guy there that scores them, so he said he's going to have him put a tape on him and see, you know, how close I got. Uh, so hopefully he doesn't break my heart too bad. But, <laughs> man, uh, you know, really it – I like putting a tape on them just to see, but it's just, it's not about that for me. I like killing big old deer that have lived. And, uh, that deer I passed up two years ago, probably at 155 inches. Um, and as he was walking away, thought, wow, you know, you're, you're stupid for that one. Probably should have went ahead and killed him. Uh, and he was what I guessed at five and a half then, but there was just something about, you know, the, the way he looked, I thought he could blow up into some kind of a freak non-typical and, you know, he gained some more uh, non-typical points. From what I measured him, he's got 19 scoreable. Oh. Um, several of them are right out about an inch long. Uh, but, you know, looking back now, I'm glad I didn't kill him two years ago. I'm glad I, that I did let him walk. But back then, you know, watching him walk away, I thought I'd really made a mistake. Now, Corey, that, that is the point where you lost 95% of our Southern <laughs> listeners because you passed up 155-inch deer. Um <laughs> But joking here, but that that is that's funny. I mean, that that is a, a huge difference because we talked about this before before we started recording that, you know, you can find a mature buck down here. It's you know four and a half, five and a half years old. That might be 115, 120 inches. That's pretty common. Um, some don't even get that big. Like I killed a six point last year. That my our tax service, you know, he he compared to jawbones to some other confirmed deer that were six and a half, seven and a half years old. He's like, dude, that deer might be eight and a half plus, and he doesn't even break a hundred inches. Uh, but jokingly, that, that, is, that is one big difference between, you know, a lot of us in the Southeast and kind of what you deal with, but kind of getting back into the, like the, the hunting aspect, I, I do want to kind of mention like the rut. Okay. And how different the rut is for you. So, you know, this 
early season to pre-rut, you know, you have a, a pretty consistent way you go about hunting. You've already kind of mentioned that. Now, during the rut, you said, like, everything, you throw everything out the window. Is that when you really try to focus on, and you kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but focus on, like, where you have the most travel uh, corridors coming together as possible, like these big drainage hubs where you have a bunch of these drainages coming together. That's kind of like your, your number one spot you really like to kind of focus on for the rut itself. Yeah. And, and, you know, more so the areas leading into that, uh, generally the earlier season, I'll be hunting as close to that area where they all come together as I can. And then kind of when the rut comes out, uh, you know, I just, from, from some observation sits and that kind of stuff really, not even trail cameras as much as it is observation sits that time of year uh, is I, I like to look and see just where the most does are browsing uh, in those, those draws that lead down to where they all kind of come together. And which, it, you know, just like anybody that, that hunts a lot is going to know it's luck of the draw during the rut. You know, you might as well just find a tree and sit in it because those, those deer are going to do stuff that you can't predict. But, you know, if you can find an area, sure, where, where it comes together with a lot of does, but, you know, they don't, they're in and out of there so fast is my thing is if there's a bunch of does in here, I generally can't even get a shot off or get a good look at a deer because he comes through and checks and smells and runs them right out of there. Uh, but those areas kind of leading up to it, a lot of times you'll catch bucks traveling on their way to go check does. Or a lot of times is where you'll catch them. They'll run them through there several times, you know, uh, back and forth in front of you. So you have time, you know, to scream at them, try to get them to stop, whatever you need to do. Uh, and that, I mean, seriously, you know, I've, there was uh, one of these bucks back here that I killed. Uh, it was probably four or five years ago. And it sounded like I was working cattle out there, just yelling to get him to stop. And he has, you know, no care in the world. He's hot on a doe. She had already ran under me and, uh, Ended up finally getting him to stop. You know, when I was trying to shoot him, was at about 10 yards, uh, pretty much right underneath me. And then he ended up getting shot. I shot him at like 38 yards by the time I got him to stop. So, uh, but yeah, those, those areas generally during the rut, I try to hunt the areas leading down to those funnels where it all comes together. Uh, just because everything's moving a little bit slower there. It seems like. Another thing that I've, I've heard you um, kind of, uh, you didn't necessarily mention this, but just based off the conversation, you don't ever target any of these long, straight creek drainages. Like, it's always about trying to find, like, multiple different paths to travel down to one area. So, it's not about, like, just hunting a long creek drainage, but it's, like, having a bunch of ditches and a bunch of these draws all coming together in one spot more so than, like, this a, a long drainage, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's just, you know, it's it's a higher percentage rate for me of success, just finding the area where it all comes together versus those, those long stretches. A lot of times is just for me where they travel. Uh, you know, I'll catch them traveling and, and I have before hunted areas like that, but you know, I see less deer, uh, and you know, not as, not as many different deer. Uh, the, a lot of times the same, you know, few deer may travel that trail up and down the edge of one of those long drainages for a long time. Uh, but then, you know, the deer that where you catch those funnels is where all these different deer that travel from these different places all come together. So it's really just a higher percentage thing for me, uh, you know, making the most of the time that I have whenever I'm out there. Yeah. Andrew's got the map pulled back up and we're looking at some spots right now. 
that like are exactly like what you're talking about. Oh my gosh, dude! I mean, again, it's so <laughs> similar to like the whole clear cuts, yep. like I these big clear cuts with a bunch of these SMZs, these streamside management zones, these hardwood drainages that run through it. It is like nearly identical. It's just you know the habitat's different. Um, you mm-hmm. know, un- unlike a clear cut that grows up, you know this stuff doesn't ever change. But God, that looks so good on the map. I don't know where Andrew is right now in Oklahoma, but wherever this property is, I would love to step foot on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, Corey, um, one last, or let me ask you, what else is like important for you for like the rut itself? Is there any kind of like outlying factors or anything else that you like to kind of key on or pay attention to? Um, you know, is it one of those things that, you know, do you like to sit some of these spots, you know, all day long? You know, is there like certain time frames when you've had the most success killing some of these bucks? Whether it's, you know, early morning, midday, or in the evening, or anything other like outlying factors? Yeah, so I'm, it's a lot of it. Early season, all of the big deer I've killed have all been in the evening time. Uh, I, I can't remember one that I've ever shot in the morning, uh, big mature deer, you know, but. Uh, once a rut comes around, yeah, I like to find somewhere and sit as long as possible. You know, if, if, if I'm feeling it that day, I'll sit all day long just because, you know, they may move through there at one, two o'clock, uh, may move through there at noon. You just never know. But uh, I don't make a whole lot of whole day sits just because, you know, I've got things that I want to go do in between the hunts or, or whatever, got things to go take care of. And uh, But, you know, like early season right now, generally I hunt. You know, I get in the stand 30, 45 minutes before light, hunt until about 10 o'clock and get down and go back out there about three uh, and hunt until dark. But, you know, things, one of the things that I don't focus on anymore, and it's completely unorthodox as a deer hunter, but, and I, I catch a lot of, a lot of crap about it around here uh, from all of my buddies and stuff. Cause everybody, you know, constantly I'm, I'm texting my buddies, Hey, you hunting today? And they're like, now the wind's wrong. And I mean, it's, you know, they may hunt one one day out of two weeks because the wind wasn't right. And I used to do it and I got so tired because I just really love to be out there, you know, and I got so tired of, of not being out there that I thought, well, you know, I can't kill them sitting in here. There's a zero percent chance of it. But at least if I'm there, there's a chance that I do. And so, you know, if the wind's just dead wrong, terrible, and I know then I may not go there that day, but you know, most of the time I don't check the wind until I'm already in the stand just so it doesn't deter me from going because, and you know, I, like that deer I killed uh, earlier this season, the wind was blowing about 10 miles an hour straight to his face when I shot him. Uh, and, you know, he never knew I was there, but um, yeah, you know, really the stuff I've talked about is kind of the main stuff I focus on. I will pay a lot of attention to the uh, the barometric pressure Uh it's just been something, you know, that I noticed consistently when it was up over 30 um, was days that I would would see a whole lot of more mature bucks moving. And, you know, I never knew the science behind it, nothing like that. It's just something that I observed and and noticed, uh, you know, and I've, I've, I've just played around with the moon here and there, and I've never been able to have a, a lot of luck figuring out exactly what to do. Uh, and the main reasons, just like I said about the wind, you know, I – I, I don't listen to a lot of factors that tell me not to hunt because I just want to be out there hunting. So, uh, I kind of use the terrain as the biggest one for me, you know, the terrain, the way that the timber runs, all that kind of stuff. And, uh, fronts, I will hunt, you know, everybody wants to hunt, uh, cold fronts coming in. They want to hunt that first morning of the cold front. And, you know, like here, there's a cold front moving in, I think on Monday of next week. 
And the Sunday evening before when it's still in the 70s will be the best day to hunt that front right before that rolls through. Uh, and then like if there's a storm coming through late that night, you can hunt uh, that day right before that storm. That evening is usually awesome. Uh, something about, you know, they know those fronts are coming in and it gets them on their feet beforehand. So I, I'll hunt right before front and then on throughout it, but but never miss those days right before it. Yeah, absolutely. Corey, I think you might already answer this, but I really wanted to ask. Uh, you mentioned that you don't necessarily care about the wind that much, that that you're going to want to go to the – if you think it's the right spot on that day, you're going to go there regardless, which we've had other guys that do that. Jamie McKay's mm-hmm. one of them. Uh, but And you said you like to check the wind when you get into the stand. If you get into the stand and it is like just dead, absolute worst possible wind – Will you like get down and adjust or will you just kind of tough it out and, and just, you know, hope that one comes by? Yeah. You know, most of the time I, I don't get down and move unless I've got another set really close that, that is good for that wind. Um, generally the thing that I do is most of the time I can count on seeing, you know, a couple of does before I see anything else way early in the hunt. And the does are, you know, worse than a lot of the big bucks about, about smelling you and, and just freaking out about it. So Usually I just let the first doe come in uh, and kind of see how she acts. And if, if she blows out of there the second she comes in and, you know, she's acting in a way that I know if a buck comes in, there's no way I'm going to get drawn back and, and get a shot off. Then a lot of times I'll go ahead and get down uh, and move to somewhere else or go home or whatever. But, you know, for me, I like to see how the deer are acting in that area before I count it out as not going to work because, you know, sometimes – uh, the wind's blowing and you think, you know, it's hitting me right here, blowing straight to them. And I think that's not going to be good, but that wind may be swirling before it hits their nose, uh, just in that, that short stretch right there. Or, you know, a lot of times the wind's blowing a little bit too hard and they can't really catch a good scent. And some days it seems to me like they just don't care about your scent. Like they, they're just in there and they've got other things on their mind or whatever. But, uh, yeah, most of the time it's, it's kind of based on the behavior of the deer that I start seeing when I first get in there. Yeah, we used to uh, have guys when I was growing up who, again, would hunt clear cuts uh, on morning hunts, and they would never pay attention to the wind, and they would climb as high as humanly possible in whatever tree that they were in. And as I got older, what I started to realize is what I think was happening was one of two things. Either the wind velocity was high enough where it's just blowing their scent over the top of everything, and they're it's never falling down and getting on the deer. Uh, or two, the, the sunlight hitting that grass is creating such a strong thermal updraft that again it's just sending their scent way up in the air and it's going way over those deer's heads and we always used to joke about it that man they're they're like up there in the nosebleed section and, and that's why that's why they're doing good and they're not getting busted by any does or, or bucks or anything like that but that that was just one thing that i was wondering about uh in that situation because uh, that i mean that's something that a lot of guys will get wigged out myself included <laughs> i never really know what to do in that situation uh so so that's interesting yeah um, it's like i've had that same thing happen like one of the first times i ever experienced that was um back when i used to live in arkansas <clears throat> hunting a piece of property that we had access to over there and sitting on a clear cut like what you're talking about and when me and thomas got in there the the wind was just not right and it was kind of blowing out into that clear cut but when the sun got up like none of the deer moved before the sun came up but when the sun finally was up the uh and the wind was kind of blowing out into that cut, you could just see your thermals just kind of rising over the top of it. And it never was, you know, an issue. Like we'd have deer, quote unquote, downwind 
but you just see all the steam from that clear cut just rising up over the top of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it worked out really good. And, you know, I think Thomas, Thomas shot a, a nice buck that morning, and we saw a few other nice deer. So mm-hmm. it, it was a pretty cool setup. Well, Corey, dude, appreciate you joining us on this podcast, man. It's been awesome. It's, it's been kind of cool after kind of discussing more about this, about the similarity of how you hunt, you know, in your part of Oklahoma and how a lot of the deep South Southern guys can kind of use your thought process on hunting against some of these large, fresh, clear cuts and how, you know, it can really be, I think, very similar. Because again, what you're seeing is a lot what we've seen in these areas when you are hunting these big clear cuts. So hopefully a lot of the listeners have gotten and the viewers have gotten some of those takeaways and how they can apply, you know, some of your same thought process and hunting strategy down in an area that's you know hundreds of miles away from you but i think would hunt very very similar so it's been a a killer conversation um but again uh, if for any listeners out there or viewers if you've enjoyed this episode i want to make sure go leave us a five-star written review on apple Podcasts, or you can do on spotify as well by the way uh but also let us know your thoughts on this because i'd be very interested in seeing you know some of our listeners uh again like mason brook and a couple other guys who's written questions about this very similar kind of thought process and, and strategy uh, especially hunting these big clear cuts um that you know where you know say you're on a hunting club and they cut a lot of your property and all you have is hardwood smz's how this applies for you if you kind of go out there and implement some of the things that Corey you've talked about in this episode. So, um, Corey, I just greatly appreciate you, you know, joining us in this episode and, uh, do wish you the best of luck for this season. Cause you still have one buck tag left. Yeah. You still have a lot of season left and hopefully excited to see you hopefully tag out this year on another really good deer. Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, I really appreciate you guys having me on, uh, let me, let me talk to you about the madness that I call deer hunting, but you know, uh, I I wish that y'all the best of luck and everybody else out there. You know, I hope hope everybody lines them up on the wall this year. And I I hope something I said today helps somebody. You know, figure out something that they've been trying to to get on. And you know, I just hope that somebody can kill a big one because of something I said. Absolutely. Well, Corey, thank you for joining us, listeners. Thank y'all for watching. Or I'm sorry. Well, viewers, thank y'all for watching. Listeners, thank y'all for <laughs> listening. And we'll catch y'all back on the next episode from the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. And y'all remember, stay southern. Look, last summer, y'all heard us talk a bunch about the Mobile Hunters Expo. It was an incredible event. A bunch of you guys came out to meet us. We got to talk to, I don't even know how many listeners. If you heard all that last year and you were like, dang, that sounded cool, I should have went to that. Here's your chance. You need to make it to this one. It's June 28th through June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. All right, giving you a heads up here, so go ahead and mark it on your calendar. June 28th through June 30th, Dalton, Georgia is going to be the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. We're going to be there. A bunch of our past podcast guests are going to be there. There's going to be seminars. All of the mobile hunting companies are going to be there for you to try out gear before you buy it. It's like the one event of the year where all of the... The, like the mobile hunter ecosystem just kind of congregates in one place. And Chris and Josh and the guys have done an absolutely phenomenal job putting this thing together over the last couple years. And it keeps getting better every year. So like I said, make sure you come see us. We're going to have a gigantic stack of free stickers to give away to every listener that stops by the booth. And we're going to have merch there to purchase. We're going to be recording podcasts, shooting videos, all kinds of stuff. So like I said, don't miss it. You can head on over to the mobilehuntersexpo.com to look at show schedules and dates and go ahead and grab your tickets. So y'all go check it out at the mobilehuntersexpo.com.